Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. One of the characteristics and sometimes even one of the curses behind being an historian is that nothing is ever as it seems. No event, no speech, No announcement, no movement, no war, no historical process is simply made up of just the component parts that you see on the surface. Behind everything is a context. The historian's job is often to understand that context and then relate it for others. And sometimes, if we're lucky, we have historians who search for context in places we take for granted as part of our everyday ritual. Take food, for instance. It's probably unlikely that any of us think too deeply about the foods we eat. Sure, we might know where the ingredients come from, or perhaps have a sense of where in the world or the country the foods originate from, what's in them, how they're raised or grown, but broadly speaking, most of us just eat to enjoy it or simply to gain sustenance. Yet food is deeply wrapped up in history. Food can be deeply wrapped up in history. And many of the foods we enjoy today in this country, some of the foods that even help make up our complicated identity, are rooted in a broader historical context. Today we are going to look at a few examples, a tasty smorgasbord of historically significant foods, what they are, how they might taste, and what they mean to Canadian identity and Canadian history. This is Season 6, Episode 2, Cleo's Treats, Culinary Connections to Canadian History. Today's book recommendation is by an author named Lenore Newman. Her book is Speaking in Cod Tongues, A Canadian Culinary Journey. It was published by the University of Regina Press in 2016, and it's a fascinating read about how Canadian identity is wrapped up in the food we eat. 
Okay, let's begin by taking a journey to New France in the mid-18th century. If we were to stop in at a farmhouse of one of the habitants living along the St. Lawrence River, we might be offered some tortillère. Tortillère is a meat pie, and while it is eaten all year round, it was wrapped up in a Catholic culinary tradition, specifically eaten after Mass on Christmas Eve. Tortillère remains a favorite Quebec dish. Like the French Canadians in what becomes Quebec, it survived a dramatic history. From becoming a favorite dish of the rural farmers of the St. Lawrence River Valley, the backbone of Canada's first European settlers in this country, it was a type of food that distinguished the rural peasantry from their land-owning elites, enshrined in what we call the seigneurial system. This system was a land ownership system particularly suited to the earliest land claims along the St. Lawrence River. The dish then survived conquest, just like Les Habitants, when New France fell to the British in 1763. Arguably, in the aftermath of the conquest, tortillère became even more important, not just as a food, but as a symbol, a connection between culinary choices and identity, as a French-Canadian food, in a sea of English-speaking provinces. Even into the 20th century, when Quebec was dominated by Anglophone money and Anglophone elites, the dish remained, a stark reminder of a long history of the French presence in Canada, in Quebec, and the dish is a testament in many ways to the reality that the French are one of the founding peoples of the nation that becomes Canada. If one was to take a trip a few decades after the conquest to an area known as the Red River, one would be struck at the dynamic history and peoples of the region. The Red River, by the early to mid-19th century, now of course modern-day Winnipeg and the surrounding areas in southern Manitoba, was a mix of French English, Scottish, Irish, Indigenous, and Métis cultures. It was a Wild West society, where large tracts of land were used for hunting buffalo, fur trapping, and small, isolated settlements banded together to survive the harsh climate and conditions of the Canadian winter. Because European voyageurs, Métis buffalo hunters, and indigenous trappers operated over such vast distances, they needed a form of food that lasted for a long time and was full of calories to fill the bodies of men constantly on the move, struggling against the rugged wilderness of the modern-day Canadian West. And thus, you have pemmican. Pemmican is a Cree word referring to a mixture of dried bison meat pounded together with bison fat and berries. It was heavily consumed by fur traders from the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company and was a key source of food for both the Métis and First Nations. It contained about 3,500 calories per pound and could stay edible for up to an astonishing five years. When pemmican first was introduced to the voyagers and fur traders that were arriving in the Red River region, 
it became a wonder food. It was like an ancient form of an energy bar. It allowed them to travel over long distances, exploring the vast interior of what today makes up the Canadian prairies. Much of this exploration carved out the modern map of the Canadian West. They could do this because they could eat. They could eat because of pemmican. Pemmican, in fact, became so important to the fur trading and exploration operations that sprung up during the 19th century that an entire economy was built around it. Cree, Assiniboine, and Métis all made pemmican for sale with European fur traders arriving in the region. There was even a war over it. When in 1814, the Hudson's Bay Company attempted to assert a monopoly over the pemmican trade in order to ensure food for the struggling Red River settlement, their rivals in the Northwest Company, supported by local Métis, resisted. Open violence ensued, and the pemmican war erupted. It only ended in 1821 with the merger of the two fur trading companies into the Hudson's Bay Company. Yet, at the same time, both the Métis and First Nations were struggling as they watched as their primary source of food, the buffalo, nearly go extinct. Sadly, as the buffalo herds declined, so too did the trade in pemmican. By the latter half of the 19th century, the pemmican economy had collapsed. Many Métis chose to move further west to the modern-day areas of Saskatchewan, while a number of Cree and Assiniboine tribes were coerced and tricked into signing treaties and moving to reserves with the hopes that the new Canadian government would help them survive. Government promises that were sadly rarely, if ever, fulfilled. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. While red fife wheat is not a dish or something you can eat while exploring the rugged interior, it is certainly an important historical food source. There are no native varieties of wheat in Canada. The soil of much of our country can certainly grow it, but wheat kernels had to be imported. In the early 1840s, a farmer near Peterborough, Ontario, named David Fife, received a type of red wheat kernel for his farm. Now, it's difficult to trace where this particular grain came from. One legend claims it came from the Ukraine. Nonetheless, what was not difficult to see was that it was an extremely flexible and adaptable grain that could be grown in all kinds of climate conditions, meaning it was perfectly suited to the soil and environment conditions of the harsh Canadian West. For almost the entire second half of the 19th century, red fife wheat was distributed and grown across the country. Almost every single farm that sprung up during this dynamic period of immigration into the West 
grew red fife wheat. The success of this wheat facilitated an explosion of wheat farms in modern-day Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. This was achieved, though, due to mass immigration. People from all over the world lured to Canada by its cheap and often free land, fantastic soil conditions, but also drawn by the promises of rich fields of wheat. By the end of the 19th century, the Canadian prairies were becoming the breadbasket of the British Empire. In fact, when the First World War erupted in 1914, this was all too clear, as Canada became the main wheat source for the entire British war effort. The introduction and successful growing of Red Fife was a key factor in being able to promote immigration to the Canadian West, and this single food staple helped define the human geography of the prairies and set Canada on a course as one of the world's major breadbaskets. Now, if it wasn't for Red Fife, we wouldn't have pierogies. Pierogies are, of course, a staple food of Eastern Europe. What are pierogies, you ask? Nobody is actually asking that. Pierogies are a type of dumpling where dough is wrapped around generally savory items like onions, beef, cheese, etc., and then boiled in water or fried in a pan. They are simply delicious, and as a descendant of Ukrainians, have been an important way in which I and my family have connected to our historical roots. You see, the last two decades of the 19th century witnessed a series of large immigration waves of Eastern Europeans from what is today Poland, Russia, and the Ukraine, but back then were parts of the Russian Empire, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The term Ukrainian is more of a modern identifier. While those coming over back then may have spoken a Ukrainian language, many identified with their region, such as Galicia, with their monarchy, such as Austro-Hungarian or Russian, and others with their religion. For instance, many of whom we now call Ukrainians actually identified as Ruthenians when they arrived a term referring to their religious observances as Eastern Catholics. Regardless, 170,000 of what we now refer to generally as Ukrainian immigrants came to Canada at the turn of the century, with most of them settling on the prairies. What made pierogies such a favored dish was the fact that it was generally quite cheap to make, though quite labor-intensive as well. You could make the dough with any generic flour and fill it with whatever you had on you, be it cabbage, beef, onion, etc. A perfectly hearty dish for hard-working peasants. It should be pointed out that many of these Eastern Europeans who came here were seen as the bottom of the European racial hierarchy and were subject to fairly intense racism from the dominant Anglo-Saxon Canadian society, and this includes, of course, internment during World War I. Pierogies were part of the exoticism of these strange peasant Eastern Europeans, an exoticism or othering that led to significant prejudice from mainstream Canada. Regardless, the Ukrainians of the prairies contributed extensively 
to the emerging prairie Canadian culture of the late 19th and early 20th century, and their influence is seen today throughout Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. They grew that red fife wheat, which in turn was used to make those pierogies, which today classifies as a favorite dish for anyone traveling through the West, and a wonderful reminder of the joys of the culinary consequences of multiculturalism. Folks, I just want to take a second and let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. And both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So like if you want to donate two bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. We survive exclusively on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page, on Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy, and thank you to all who have donated. We could not keep doing this without you. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. So, so far, we have seen trends of foods that were indigenous to this land, those that arrived with the earliest Europeans, and those that arrived later with the immigration ships. If we are to talk about the culinary joys of multiculturalism, we simply cannot ignore the influence that one Jewish-Romanian immigrant had on the entire sandwich world. Reuben Schwartz came to Canada from Romania in the early 20th century. He established the now extremely famous Schwartz's Deli in late 1927, which serves one of the most famous Montreal smoked meat sandwiches in the entire world. In fact, the name of a Montreal smoked meat sandwich is known as the Reuben. Montreal smoked meat is just that. Meat, smoked for a long period of time, that ends up tasting ridiculously good and sandwiched between two pieces of bread with a pickle and mustard tastes even better. Now I'm simplifying the recipe, but nonetheless, the basics are there. It's worth pointing out, however, that Reuben did not bring smoked meat to Montreal. There were already several smoked meat delis established by the time Schwartz's Deli opened up. The idea of smoked meat is said to have come from Jewish communities in Romania who were introduced to the recipe via invading Turkish armies. The earliest evidence for smoked meat in Montreal comes from 1894. So Schwartz's Deli was certainly not the first, and Schwartz's Deli was certainly not the phenomenon it is today when it first opened. You see, the problem was Reuben Schwartz was a bit of a schlechty mensch, a bad guy. He was a gambler, a notorious misogynist, even for the time, frequented brothels, and wasted his money on a variety of financial misadventures. Even his own family was said to have not liked him very much. But he did have a hell of a smoked meat recipe that he brought over from the old world. 
Now, because of his financial debts, Schwartz was forced to sell his deli in 1931 to a Russian musician living in Montreal. Yet the name and the recipe remained, and Schwartz even stayed on as the manager. With a better business plan in place, the deli began to thrive, even during the Great Depression. From the 1930s onwards, smoked meat became synonymous with Montreal, even eclipsing its rival New York. It soon became the pride of one of Canada's oldest cities. And today, Schwartz's Deli and Montreal smoked meat are simply iconic features of both the Montreal and Canadian culinary landscape. Of course, if we're going to talk about Canada's culinary landscape rooted in Quebec, no discussion would be complete without addressing one of the greatest culinary contributions in the history of the world. That's right, poutine. A simple dish of French fries, cheese curds, and gravy. The origins of poutine are as dark as the gravy is supposed to be on the fries. Like tortiere, it was a dish of the commoners, a hearty, hot, cheap meal that filled the gut on cold Quebec days. It is generally agreed that poutine was invented in the 1950s, so a surprisingly newer culinary tradition, and it became the informal dish of Quebec chip shacks and greasy spoon diners. Yet, its official origins as a dish on a menu is highly contested. It seems to have come from the region Centre du Québec, where a restaurant in Warwick, a restaurant in Drummondville, and a restaurant in Princeville all claim to be the first to have put it on the menu. Interestingly, for a long time, it was actually seen negatively by most Quebecers. For instance, Montreal chefs would often make it to eat themselves or feed their staff, but refused to ever put it on their own menus. Many in Quebec, frankly, saw it as an unsophisticated backwoods creation or simply an unhealthy meal that was consumed by drunks. This narrator admits to imbibing a few beers during his PhD in Fredericton, followed by waiting in a long line for a bag of poutine from the poutine truck. Yet, in the aftermath of the quiet revolution of the 1960s, things began to change. Quebec began to refashion its identity, and its people began to refer to themselves as Québécois. By the end of the 20th century, many Québécois began to take pride in this once unfavorable dish. By the 21st century, restaurants throughout Quebec and the rest of Canada serve poutine, both the classic way and in a variety of new and exciting ways. Lobster poutine, smoked meat poutine, braised beef poutine, pierogi poutine, and unbelievably vegetarian and vegan poutine. In 2007, the CBC had a contest of Canada's greatest inventions, and incredibly, poutine finished at number 10. In 2017, Maclean's magazine listed poutine as the country's most iconic food. In 2016, at the first state dinner between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and President Barack Obama, you guessed it, poutine was served. Simply put, this backwoods dish 
has become a culinary identifier of this massive nation, once again reminding us of both the country's French roots and the powerful connection between identity and food. Now, dear listeners, while there are numerous other foods or snacks associated with the Canadian identity and history like cheesies, Tim Hortons donuts, ketchup-flavored chips, California rolls, these were invented by Chef Tojo in Vancouver, McCain's Super Fries, even the infamous McDonald's McLobster. The discussed foods today are ones rooted in both history and the diverse landscape of Canadian peoples. Sometimes it's hard to believe that something like food can carry with it historical weight and markers of identity. Yet when we spend the time diving a bit deeper into the foods we love, we can always find a story. We can always find a connection. And frankly, that just makes it taste all that much better. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in and stay cool. Stay cool.